And as you've taken your seats, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 8. Before we jump into uh, the text this morning, I promised you an update on Haiti, so that's exactly what I'm going to do. Thank you for your patience and your grace in allowing me to bump it back uh, just another week. But uh, I wanted to fill you in on all that God is doing in Haiti and where God is leading us as a church to partner with Haiti. Uh, I was down there a couple weeks ago on a vision trip, and the, the idea there was uh, me and a group of pastors from other Harvest Churches went down to get a glimpse of the work that God is doing there in Haiti um, through the, the Harvest Churches that exist there and through what, what uh, they would like to see happen, their vision for Haiti. And so it was an incredible trip. It was a real eye-opening trip. Haiti is a, a place that was devastated, as most of you know, in 2010 by a massive a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. It was crippled in many, many ways. Estimates of, of death tolls were anywhere between 150 to 350,000 people. The infrastructure there, which was already lacking in many ways, was utterly destroyed. Since the earthquake, $13 billion has been funneled into Haiti from all kinds of uh, organizations around the world. Much of that, sadly, um, is hard to account for because of a massive government corruption and abuse of the, the financial resources that have come in. As a result of, of that corruption that's existed for a long time in Haiti, there's a lot of political unrest. They're approaching another election, which means they're uh, up in arms, burning tires in the streets, and it can be a place where um, it's just a lot of unhappiness with what's going on, especially when it relates to the government. The people, despite being in significant poverty, are really kind and gracious people, but there is unbelievable poverty. It is considered a third world country. Uh, there is a, a lack of gross domestic production. The, the, the nation of Haiti, the Republic of Haiti, produces very little that it exports, but they're very dependent upon imports. And so that leaves the, the people in a place of a great poverty as there's not much work to be done. There's incredibly high unemployment. Uh, what is sad is you're driving along the streets through the mountain village, villages. There's so little to do. It's a really sad state. A lot of people simply sit on the side of the road or sit on their doorstep and just stare out into the distance. The religious climate is fascinating. Many of you may know that there is uh, roots of the voodoo, um, kind of that mystical, satanic, occultic presence has been strong there in the past, and it's well known for its voodoo priests. But there are some other religious influences in Haiti. There's been other, um, there's been a strong Catholic influence there. There's been some Mormon influence there. There is some evangelical, Protestant evangelical presence there. Uh, but sadly, one of the things that we noticed and that was explained to us as we went across Haiti is that, that most of the, the population would claim to be Christian. They would claim to, they would profess Christ, and many would actually attend a church on a Sunday, and they would boast in their um, um, participation in a church. A church happens, by the way, mainly on Sundays. There's almost no life of the church in between, you know, from Sunday to Sunday. It's all on Sunday, and they pride themselves in being involved in helping out with the church. But what we recognized as we talked to many uh, locals is that there, are, there was almost no person who could give us, though they profess Christ, uh, an actual explanation of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There is heavy influence from some charismatic, um, really charismatic, word of faith kind of preaching. And so there's a lack of understanding of what the true gospel is. In the midst of that, I would say that, uh, and by the way, there, there was this very synchristic approach um, to their religious beliefs too. So that means this, they'll, they'll hear something in voodoo, they'll hear something from the Mormon church, they'll hear something from maybe the Catholic church and the Protestant evangelicals, and they'll pick and choose, and they'll have kind of a mishmash kind of a faith, a melting pot of religious beliefs that they boil down into one kind of religious faith. So they practice all of these faiths, and in reality, they really have nothing. But in the midst of that, one of the things that we're seeing in Haiti is that it's produced a great opportunity. The gospel there is moving forward and people are finding these other religious influences to be empty and devoid of true life and true purpose and they're not substantive, but the gospel is coming in, the true gospel, and it's having a radical impact across Haiti. Harvest has planted two churches in Haiti and uh, they're in the process of planting a third church. The main church is in Jacmel, Haiti, which is about three and a half hours outside of the uh, capital city. 
uh, Port-au-Prince. And the church is just flourishing. They launched in 2014 with 1,600 people. God has blessed them enormously. The pastor of that church is named Pastor Abraham. He's a, a very wise, godly man. He had been in ministry for about 15 years prior to launching a Harvest church there and was really drawn to what God was doing through Harvest, really loved what Harvest stood for, and, uh, and was incredibly encouraged by what God was beginning to do in Haiti. This man has started orphanages on the church property, uh, where there are countless boys and girls who are being cared for and loved in a place that is filled with immense poverty. Uh, he has started medical clinics to serve the communities where there is no health care, uh, where there is no medical assistance, where people die regularly of disease and infirmity, infirmity that can easily be treated by um, contemporary modern-day health practices. One of the things that they're noticing there is that the churches, not just Harvest, but definitely in Harvest, are doing things that the government uh, is not doing for the people. They're loving and caring in such practical ways, and the government has recognized that the orphanages that they're running at the Harvest, on the Harvest Church properties are functioning so well and caring so well for the kids, they're being prized by the government. The community around is being drawn into the church as they look at the way the love of God is being expressed in such practical ways, and the doors are being opened up wide for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's incredible uh, to hear what's going on, and as a church, one of the things that we're being asked to participate in, and we have el as elders have prayed and uh, believe that God is leading us to do, is to partner with Haiti, and that's pr pr primarily going to, especially at the beginning, going to look like short-term mission trips, begin to help support them in mission trips such as building projects. They lack resources, they lack skills and abilities there. Uh, medical mission trips, some of you may be very interested in that, and equipping mission trips. All of these, by the way, centered on the gospel, but equipping trips where we're going to equip the leaders and the, the ministry teams and uh, the church with uh, good biblical truth. The potential is massive. We were talking with Pastor Abraham, and he's really spearheading so much of what's going on in Haiti. He's in the process of planting their third church there in a place called Cap Rouge. And uh, one of the things that he told us was that he wants to see in the next few years 10 churches planted. And he's beginning the process. He's such an incredible man. He's raising up men within his church. He's been leading them for years, been discipling them. He's sending them off to get education and, and formal training so that they're well-equipped and rooted in the word of God. And then he's sending them back out and, and sending them to plant churches. We, we talked to him about his vision for the next 10 years of Haiti, and he, he took it a step further. He said, well, listen, I want to share with you my vision for Haiti over the next 20 years. I want to devote my life to this, he told us. And he said, I, I pray that Haiti has 10 provinces. He said, I want to see in 20 years 10 churches in each of the 10 provinces that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And us pastors, we're sitting back, we're like, wow, we, we said, well, that's a really big vision. He said, yeah, I know, but we serve a really big God. We were so blown away by his courage. We were blown away by his conviction, by his compassion for people. Just loves people. He wants to minister to his people. But I was so blown away primarily by his confidence. His unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ. I mean, he feared no man. He feared no enemy. He just saw the gospel continuing to sweep across his nation. And that's the truth, isn't it, church? The gospel is the hope of the nations. And we are called to move forward with the gospel with the same kind of conviction, with the same kind of courage, with the same kind of compassion, and with the same kind of confidence. God is pressing us out into the world, a world that desperately needs him. And the gospel is advancing. It is advancing inch by inch, day by day, soul by soul. God is gathering unto himself a people redeemed for his own purposes, for his own glory. And we go into this world with confidence. Why? Why can we have such confidence as we enter out into the world? Why may we fear not as we enter into this world? And here's the simple answer. We know that the gospel will prevail because the power of God cannot fail. Amen? It cannot fail. It cannot fail. He cannot be stopped. The gospel will move forward as God has designed it to move forward. And that church, listen, is through the church. 
has called the church, and he gives the church power. Power to proclaim the gospel, to see it advance. As we look at our text this morning, that's exactly what we see. The focus is on the power of God moving the mission forward. And first, as we look at the text together, I want you to note this. We see first the power to declare spiritual truth. This is the calling of the church, and we'll begin by reading verses 4 through 8 together. Look at it with me. It says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The sovereign design of God for the spread of the gospel world includes suffering. You remember the context that we find ourselves in. We have just seen Stephen give this magnificent defense of the faith, but we've seen subsequently the rage and the anger amidst the Jewish religious elite. They seize him, they stone him, and following that we see that the persecution doesn't stop, it's just getting started. A young man by the name of Saul actively sat by, actively affirming the work of the the stoning and murder of Stephen. He sits by, but we see in the next verses there that he himself begins to ravage the church. He's going door to door. He's banging on the doors. He's hauling out men and women. He's throwing them in prison. And as a result of that, verse 4 reminds us that the people of God are being scattered because of persecution. The gospel keeps advancing, listen to this church, not in spite of persecution, but because of persecution. This has always been the plan of God. Suffering is not an opportunity to waste. It is an opportunity to be seized. Jesus himself reminds us of this, doesn't he? Jesus suffered to provide the gospel. We suffer sometimes to propagate the gospel. And what an incredible picture this is of these early Christians. If you need a verse for whole church participation in the evangelizing of the nations, this is it, verse 4. Everybody who is scattered begins to preach the word of God. And that word preaching is somewhat unfortunate because we think of somebody standing up you know, in front of a, a podium and preaching formally. The essence there of that word is this, that people, wherever they went, were talking about Jesus Christ. They went sharing the gospel in all kinds of contexts, in whatever way they could, in personal conversations, in public forums, wherever they were, Jesus Christ was proclaimed. What a beautiful picture of dedicated believers. Picture them, listen, this is, this is so astounding. Picture them as they run for their lives grasping for what few possessions they could hold on to as they fled to save themselves. See them praying for deliverance, but also see them praying for the courage to be faithful, proclaiming this message wherever they go. Regardless of suffering and persecution, the church here stands, understands, excuse me, that it is the plan of God and that God has given them the power to declare spiritual life. After last week's sermon, I spoke to a number of people who really had me thinking about some things. And there was a number of you who, who just wrestled with, you know, we spoke so much about persecution and, and how God uses suffering to spread the gospel, but so many of you were reflecting upon your own life, and if we're honest, I mean, we've faced very little suffering and persecution for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, just so few, so little, like the persecution we face is, is so minimal compared to what these believers are facing, to what so many around the world are facing. So, so many people were saying, well, like, how, what, what, well, then what does this mean for me? And I was struck by that, and you know the truth is this, if those who are suffering for the sake of Christ are faithfully proclaiming Christ, how much more so those who have been given the freedom, the opportunity, the green light, the painless Christian existence that we have, how much more so should we be out there proclaiming and declaring the life that you can have in Christ? I mean, we should take this church, listen, as a rebuke in one sense, because so often we're apathetic and lazy with the gospel when we have no reason to be. And we should take this, listen, as a challenge. 
a challenge to be faithful with the opportunity that God has given us to live in such a place, in such a time as this, that we might go forth and declare that there is life. (coughs) Philip is one of these men, verse five tells us that he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a mature, godly man. In Acts chapter 6, we know that he was selected alongside of Stephen to care for the Grecian widows. Clearly, he is a man who loves God, who loves the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he begins to take the gospel as he's pressed outward because of persecution. You'll notice this. I believe that this is true of every Christian who proclaims Christ, especially in the midst of suffering, that persecution propels them, but conviction compels them. It's the conviction of the truth that compels them to share, that controls them. And here is Philip. He takes the gospel north of Jerusalem to a place called Samaria. Up to this point, it's important to remember that the church's witness has been exclusively in the realm of Jewish people. It's been primarily in Jerusalem. But the plan has always been to see the gospel advance beyond the walls of Jerusalem out into Judea. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? It's on the screen behind me. He said to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here we see the very plan of God being fulfilled. Luke loves, by the way, to record speeches. He's a a historian at heart. He loves to document the speeches, and we see that consistently throughout the book of Acts. But one thing that's so fascinating here is that when it comes to Philip, he records virtually nothing of what Philip actually said to them. We have here only a snippet that he proclaimed to them the Christ. And this is fascinating to me because we've just spent a whole chapter where Luke has documented Stephen's just magnificent defense of the faith. It is so eloquent. It is so powerful. And that there, yet there is little said about Philip. I'm sure that Luke is not in any way intending to demean Philip's ministry, but I I think I'm taking this as somewhat of a reminder to me that communicating the gospel in a less polished form is far better than not communicating it at all. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's on the screen behind me as well, he said this, when he went to Corinth, Early in his ministry, he said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you that, or excuse me, uh, did, bleh, let me start again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Some translations say with eloquence of speech. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. And I was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that this was always the way that God intended to use broken vessels. That so many were not filled with an ability to eloquently communicate the truth. And I think this is so helpful because so often we step back and, and one of the fears we have and one of the, the, the deterrents we have in terms of communicating the gospel is we feel so inadequate. I can't communicate as well as so-and-so and I'm not as eloquent or as winsome as so-and-so and I don't have all the answers like so-and-so and so I'm just going to stay back and keep my mouth shut. Well, in Stephen, we see courageous eloquence. In Philip, we see aggressive and effective evangelism. And look what God did. He worked so powerfully to open the hearts of the people. Verse 6 says that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. I mean, the crowds begin to flock around him. Everybody wants to hear what this man says. They're not only paying attention to what he says. Listen, they pay attention to what they see. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, the signs were this, verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
the Spirit of God, remember, allowed at this phase in the life of the church signs and wonders to accompany the messengers to affirm both the message and the messenger. This was a powerful declaration that God was at work, that God had backed uh, these messengers, that what they said, they said on behalf of him. But there's also a futuristic aspect to these signs and wonders that you need to take note of. You see, here we we have Philip proclaiming the Christ. Later it's going to tell us that he was proclaiming to them the kingdom of God. And all these signs and wonders were pointing them towards a future day. A future day, look, when there would be no more demonic presence, where there would be no physical disease, where there would be no lame people, but there would be total, complete freedom because of Christ. This was a powerful picture of what they were embracing, a life of freedom in Jesus Christ, a life filled with the Spirit. The miracles were secondary serving to attract attention to the gospel. But the greatest miracle here was not the physical healings, but the spiritual life that was being offered and embraced. Here's what you bring, church, when you declare spiritual life of the gospel. Did you notice what it says in verse four? Excuse me, verse eight. It says, so there was much joy in that city. I mean, can you just, for a moment, reflect on the, the time you gave your life to Christ? Can you think back that far? Can you remember the day? Can you remember the moment? Can you remember the year maybe where you, you know God got a hold of your life? Can you reflect upon the very instant maybe some of you where you know you surrender, where you bowed the knee, where you called out to God and you confessed your sin and God rescued you from the darkness and brought you into the light, where God took you from death and gave you life and can you remember subsequently what took place in your life, the joy you began to experience as God was real to you for the first time. As you knew that you now were no longer under condemnation, but you had freedom in Christ Jesus. You had been restored to your God where he's given you purpose and meaning and the truth was so sunk into your heart. For those of you who maybe can't remember that moment as vividly, I wonder if you're old enough to have children, do you remember the first time you held your firstborn? Do you remember what it was like to see the gift of life come to fruition? Do you remember the joy that overwhelmed your soul? Have you ever seen, have you ever been allowed to participate in offering the gift of new life and seeing somebody embrace Jesus Christ for the first time? There's nothing, is there, like seeing the joy in the life of a new believer as they embrace the love of God and his forgiveness? Samaria was only a few miles away from Jerusalem. And it didn't require learning a new language. Yet this was the very first missionary activity that was taking place in the life of the church. They were propelled by persecution but compelled by conviction that the only life that could be offered was found in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we can just consider how they began to see the gospel spread like this if you would just allow that picture to inform maybe your life right now. Where you live, where your home is situated, maybe where you work every day, and would you look at the boundaries that surround, maybe just a few miles around your neighborhood, and would you see the potential that exists there? Would you see a multitude of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who God is calling you to go and reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is the kind of mentality that God is calling the church to have. We are not saved to be stationary and to sit around knowing the truth can save, yet not offering the truth and offering the life to those who so desperately need it. The Bible says to us, you have a mission field. Every one of you has a mission field, and God says to you, go. Go and declare spiritual life in Christ and be encouraged and go with confidence because what God calls you to, he empowers you for, amen? Secondly, we see that God has granted to the church power to destroy spiritual deception. We're introduced in this next section to a shady figure, a man named Simon. 
Simon had been practicing magic in the city. It says in verse 9, look at it with me. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I mean, Simon here had long held uh, influence in the people. He had long astounded them with his tricks. He boasted, did you love that? He boasted in his own greatness. Always pointing to how great he was. He was somebody to be paid attention to. Somebody to be respected. Somebody whom God was using. In fact, what becomes clear is that he apparently claimed to be some sort of God himself. To at least possess that very power of God. And history and tradition tell us that Simon actually had set up, had people set up uh, statues of himself. Paying homage to his deity. His power. Here is a man who lived for his own glory. He lived for the praise of men and it began to consume him at some point in his life. As he lived and he had some sort of abilities, by the way, he certainly is some kind of a con man, an illusionist, but I would say that it's far more than that. Instead of pointing others to a true deity, he points others to himself. This is certainly demonically inspired. The magic, the sorcery that he practiced was something occultic. And in contrast, notice this with Philip. Here, when he proclaims his greatness, when he does these miraculous signs, he calls people to worship him. Instead, Philip comes along and he's gathering the crowds around him and people are listening and paying attention to him and he calls people to focus their attention on the greatness of the true and living God, the kingdom of God, the one who truly rules above all things. There was a shift among the people. Did you notice the language there? Prior to Philip coming, they were all paying attention to him. They were all amazed by him. They all thought that this man possessed great power. But then Philip comes along and they see the true power of God. They believe the message that Philip preaches. Philip had invaded the stronghold of the occult in Samaria. And part of this text is trying to, what this text is trying to teach us is simply this, that as Christians we need to know what we're up against. So many Christians go out into the world with confidence, but they fail to recognize what we're up against. You see, the Bible tells us that when we walk out into the surrounding world, we walk out into the kingdom and the domain of darkness. We walk out and we encounter the one who is called the prince of the power of the air. We walk out and there is Satan who is said to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I mean, we walk out into the world, and there we encounter the one who disguises himself as an angel of light so that he can keep captive and blinded the minds of unbelievers this is what we walk out into this is what philip walks into one of satan's primary objectives listen church this is so important to understand it is to hold people captive by spiritual deception he offers counterfeit gospels he offers counterfeit options and many people purchase these options He offers a counterfeit poison that many people drink down quickly. But at the heart of this text, look, Luke is wanting to make clear that we need to know what we're up against. But better than that, listen, he is wanting to make clear that Philip, what Philip finds himself up against and what we find ourselves up against is no match for the true spiritual power of God. When the power of Jesus Christ encounters the power of Satan, church, this is exciting news. There is no contest, right? Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? Jesus Christ has overcome the realm of Satan. He does not hold all of the power. Jesus does. And guess who has the power of Jesus everywhere we go? We do. Paul says it like this in first, Second Corinthians 10.3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, notice this, to destroy strongholds. And I want you just to get this sense. You ask, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is, in, is a prison. It's something that keeps people captive, that they cannot escape from on their own. And Satan, this is his objective. He wants to keep people in a spiritual prison. How does he do this? In what way? Notice verse 5. We, here's how we encounter these strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Satan seeks to keep people captive by spiritual, listen, deception that comes by the way of falsehood. He holds them captive. And here, our greatest weapon we see against the error and strongholds of Satan is the truth. It is the truth that tears down these strongholds. It is the truth that utterly destroys and obliterates them. Well, we were in in Haiti. Um, We were out for dinner one night, and we were coming back in. It was about 9.30 at night. It It was pitch black outside, and we're driving through these back roads, and all of a sudden, we see up in front of us uh, what looks like lights flickering in the distance. As we got up closer, uh, we noticed that we were approaching a large crowd. Hundreds of people were gathering in the middle of the street, and they were blocking off traffic. We came to a halt, and just to paint the picture for you, there is about 15 of us standing in the back of a pickup truck, holding on, you know, fully exposed out in, in the open, and you know, rolling through, finally coming to a stop. And the crowds, they had uh, torches, and they had huge sticks they were carrying. I don't know what else they had, but they looked like they were you know, kind of in a bit of a mood. They were chanting and singing, and it was incredibly bizarre. And we stood there as they surrounded the truck that we were in, not knowing what was going on. Our Haitian guide, who was a part of the church, got out, and he began to talk back and forth with the leader. And it took about 10 minutes, finally, before they parted ways and let us pass by, all the while chanting and singing and shaking their sticks in the air and looking at us with what looked like hate in their eyes. When we got back to the hotel that we were staying at, we asked uh, our Haitian guide what they were doing. And he said, oh, that's, a, that's called a devil band. <laughs> I'm like, oh, sounds exciting. And he said, uh, we were like, well, what were they doing? Like, why, why are they doing this? He said, well, this is common at this time of year to run across these devil bands. And he said, what happens is they all get together and they all start this devil march down the road and they sing and they chant because they're celebrating. We said, well, what are they celebrating? He said, they're celebrating Satan's victory over Jesus on the cross. And I looked at him, I said, do they know that Satan's celebration was really short-lived? He said, is this common? Like, does this happen all the time? He said, well, you know what? He said, it used to be really common. He said, but what we're seeing is that it's far less common than it used to be. In fact, we've seen the presence of voodoo begin to diminish, and it's almost nowhere to be found. It's small pockets. It's times like this where you see glimpses of it, but more and more we're seeing that it's really not a factor anymore. Its presence is almost entirely gone, and we said, well, what's what's happened? Why is that happening? And he looked at us, and he said this. He said, the power of the gospel is dispelling the power of Satan. So the gospel is going forth and people are coming from the darkness to the light. They're coming from death to life and Satan is fleeing. Christians, this is what we bring with us. We march out into a dark world, but we bring the light of Christ. And the darkness is no competition for the light. The darkness flees. We need to get rid of this woe is me mentality in the church, don't we? Like, oh, the world is against us. You know, we despair and and we're all down and we think that there's no hope. And listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have the power of the spirit and the power of the truth of God's word. We fight with a spiritual weapon that has the ability to destroy strongholds, to crush every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. We tear it down. We obliterate it because the truth of God is stronger than the falsehood of Satan. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. We march with utter confidence and the devil bands will flee. What's astonishing in this passage 
is not only that people are coming en masse to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? And he's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And did you notice this? They were baptized, both men and women. You know, multitudes are confessing Christ as Lord and Master, and they're following him. But what's so staggering is that it initially appears that even Simon, notice that, notice verse 13, look at your Bibles, even Simon himself believed. But the text gives us an indication that the belief of Simon may in fact be superficial. It may be masquerading as true faith and it may not be the real thing. Look at what it says in the rest of verse 13. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Some translations say he began to follow Philip. And look what else it adds on. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He, he was captured not by the message, did you notice this, but by the miracles. He loved the power that was being put on display, not the one who had given the power. He followed Philip around when we know the most foundational call of the Christian life is to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Here is someone who wanted to follow another man, who is someone who wanted to do signs and wonders, and he sees you. Here's what you have to see. Remember, this is the tricks of the trade. This is how he got rich and famous by putting these displays of power on. And he sees in Philip something he wants, and it's not Jesus, it's his power. You know, there are always some who want the benefits of Christ without a relationship with Christ. But the Bible does not have a category of Christians for those who say they love Christ but will not follow Christ. The only category that it has for that is called an unbeliever. Somehow, Simon missed the fundamentals of the faith. We'll see that a little bit later on as well. For now, we'll move on and notice what God gives to the church. He gives power to display spiritual unity. This is such a fascinating part of the narrative, and this has caused much controversy in the church, and different denominations hold different views of the way the Spirit works in many ways because of this passage here. Look at what it says in verse 14 through 17. It says, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating, that's for sure, but it provokes so many questions, and in, again, I mean, many trees have been murdered and much ink spilled trying to explain what's going on. Some people take this as being a normative part of the Christian life, that this is the way that, that the coming of the Spirit is supposed to happen, that we have a moment of salvation, a conversion experience, and this is common even in Pentecostal movements and other charismatic movements where you have a salvation experience but then even sometimes post-water baptism, you have a Holy Spirit experience where you are uh, baptized into the Spirit, or sometimes they call it the second blessing. And so some people see that there's maybe two stages of salvation taking place or a salvation experience taking place. That, I believe, is fraught with problems. One is this. First, um, to make this experience normative is uncalled for because the book of Acts depicts the coming of the Spirit in multiple different ways at multiple different times. There is no normative experience in the book of Acts laid out about the coming of the Spirit in relationship to salvation, especially not early on. Yet, what we can say for sure is that that's exactly what happens here. There is salvation that's taking place, and then the Spirit comes later. It happens here, but I want you to remember what we've looked at in, uh, in depth already, but Acts is a transitional book that's so helpful in understanding what's going on here. Acts is transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're moving from a time where there was no permanent indwelling presence of the Spirit of God to a time where there is. The entire New Testament, this might be helpful, makes it plain that the people who do not have the Spirit of God are not born again. What's normative in the Christian experience is this. If you don't have the Spirit of God, it's evidence that you do not have saving faith. 
The very act of the Spirit in our hearts brings about salvation. That's what the new, rest of the New Testament teaches. Having taken up residence for that, from that act, he never leaves us. So the question then is, why is this happening like this? Why is Luke emphasizing this? Well, you have to see this. If you're going to understand this passage, and this will unlock everything, Luke is emphasizing spiritual and church unity. Okay? Just begin to filter it and, and view it through the context of unity, and you'll begin to see the pieces all fall into place. And here's why. There's history here that we need to understand. See, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. I mean, they had such a deep and intense hatred of each other. Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman? The disciples are blown away, not only by the fact that he would talk to a woman who was by herself, but the fact that he would talk to a Samaritan. The Samaritans descended from the northern tribes of Israel. The old kingdom of Israel that had fallen to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Those who were not taken captive and brought back to Assyria remained in the land. But what they did is what the Jews hated so much. They began to intermarry extensively with the Canaanite natives and all of the uh, other ethnic groups that had repopulated Israel. And so these Samaritans, listen, they still considered themselves people of, the people of God. They had a, a Jewish blood, partially at least. Uh, they, uh, they held to the word of God in some senses. They had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed in, they held to, but that was it. There was nothing beyond that that they embraced. They circumcised their male children on the eighth days. They even built a temple at the bottom of Mount Gerizim uh, that rivaled the temple in Jerusalem. They believed that it was the true place of worship. Remember the, the Samaritan woman having that argument with Jesus? They were waiting for a prophet like Moses. She says that too in John 4.25, quoting from Deuteronomy 18.15. But you see, the Jews had an utter hatred for them. They despised them because they saw them as half-breeds and as heretics. They saw them as people who had abandoned the full ways of God. They'd embraced other nations the way that God had called them not to. And they didn't believe the full revelation of God's word. And you can see the problem that this could potentially pose in the life of the church, both theologically and practically. Here's some people who we believed were outcasts, who were beyond the grace of God. They've now embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they've been brought into the family of God. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, do we treat them the same? We've had this hundreds of years of history of hating each other. So to make clear the unifying power of the gospel, God has to put on this marvelous display of unity and embracing a people who were once never embraced. So what do they do? They send, look at this, Peter and John come from Jerusalem. Remember, Peter and John are the, they're the top dogs, they're the top apostles. And they come, I think, first, listen, to figure out what's actually happened. I mean, they heard the news. The Samaritans have believed, but they come, don't miss us, to affirm what God is doing. They come to put their stamp of approval. They know they come with the authority of God, and so they come with a public sign that though these Samaritans were once far off, God in his grace has brought them near. So they come and they lay their hands on them. We'll see that Simon misinterprets the laying of hands. He believes that they are alone infusing the power of the Holy Spirit as if somehow there's something um, supernatural related to laying on of hands. Historically in the Jewish faith and following through in the, the Protestant Christian faith, the laying on of hands was meant to symbolize solidarity and fellowship. God in his grace, as they did that act, filled these uh, believers with his spirit, showing that not only have the apostles embraced them, I have embraced them. It's an unprecedented situation that demanded an exceptional affirmation. You know, the good news is we look at this and we just consider how this might impact us, our lives, and our church. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus becomes a co-equal with Christ. Isn't that awesome? become a joint heir with Christ, a full-fledged member of the family of God. And the good news for us is, I don't know what your life was like growing up, but God has no favorite children, right? Everybody is considered loved and equal in God's family. Now that goes against so much of our flesh, doesn't it? 
And in our flesh, we tend to elevate ourselves above other people. We tend to disdain people who are different than us. And some of us, maybe we come from backgrounds or we have a context in which some of these things were shaped, but you need to see this. Our hearts love to discriminate against people. Our, love, our hearts love to elevate self and diminish others. And so what we've seen is this. Throughout the history of the church, I mean, people have been ostracized because of race. People have been ostracized because of ethnicity, because of socioeconomic factors. You know, they're, they're poor and so they're not worthy. Or they're rich so they're more loved and blessed by God. I love what the Apostle Paul says in relation to our salvation. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And when it comes to salvation, everybody is equal. There is to be no discrimination in the church. We celebrate and we rejoice that God gives unity in diversity. And you have to see how important this is, church. Listen, the church in her unified diversity displays the heart of God to the watching world. The world loves to discriminate too. And when they look at the church, that's the last thing that they should ever see. What they should see is this. We have broken down all barriers, right? The gospel crashes through gender, it crashes through socioeconomic barriers, it crashes through racial barriers, it crashes through geographical barriers, and what it does is it brings the people, as Revelation tells us, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, right, together in one place, unified to worship the one true and living God. And so if that is what the church looks like, the mix of diversity, but celebrating the unity in Christ, what it says to the world is this. The church is a place, and God is a God who welcomes everyone. That means there's a moment of contemplation necessary. (laughs) Church. I think part of what the church needs to do is maybe what you need to contemplate in your heart even now is this, where are there walls that exist? Where are there barriers that need to be smashed down by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is it that you struggle to be around? What kind of people group? What ethnicity? We gravitate towards those we're comfortable with and those who are like us, but the gospel says that all are welcome. Listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Finally, notice this, that God gives to the church the power to denounce spiritual pretenders. And here, we see Simon coming back in full force. He's just witnessed the apostles laying their hands on these Samaritans and the Spirit of God falling upon them. I don't know if there was some kind of powerful display like there was at Pentecost. It might be, that, it might be the case, it's just it's omitted here. Regardless, he saw that there was some supernatural power that they received, and he wrongly assessed the situation. He wrongly assessed the Spirit of God. Verse 18 says this, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit's. I mean, this is, this is just outrageous. He offers Peter and John money for their trade secret of how to dispense the Spirit of God through the laying on of hands. And you have to remember, I mean, he's a professional con man. He robs, he robs the poor. He robs people. He takes their money. He's self-glorified. I mean, he's looking at this as a get-rich-quick scheme. I mean, do you, can you imagine how much money I would make with the power to, to lay hands on people and to see miracles happen I mean, this is a fantastic opportunity. Peter, he just cuts right to the heart of Simon and he responds with such strong and direct, such confrontational words. Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And one commentator said it like this. He translated this passage as this, to hell with you and your money. That's strong. That's a strong rebuke. You see, the true heart of Simon begins to emerge. Whatever he professed in verse 13 was certainly not saving faith. Throughout the book of Acts, human greed is always depicted as the most destructive force in the human heart. Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. Here, Simon, and we'll see others who follow this same path. Greed has prevented him from embracing Christ. It's only given him an appetite for the benefits of Christ. Do you see the difference? Simony is a term that finds its roots in this incident. The term simony historically has been used to describe those who purchase positions of authority in the church. People who bought a church office, you know, uh, and by that I mean um, a, a position of power, an elder, a bishop. Throughout the ages, this has been common practice in the life of the church. In a broader sense, we can view simony as any attempt to try to manipulate God for personal gain. And there's a sense in which simony actually exists in every single human heart. Every one of us has the propensity, and at times maybe you can even think to, times where you wanted to use God for your own personal gain, where you wanted to follow God, not because you loved God, because you wanted something from Him, right? And, and, and here's subtly how it happens even in the Christian life. Sometimes we don't even realizing, realize that we're using God, we're trying to manipulate God. If I just obey, maybe I'll get that job I've been hoping for. As if God wants to punish you all the time, Right? If I just obey, maybe my life will start getting uh, better. You know, so, the, so the objective is this. If I do, then I'll get. In a very specific sense, we see simony and we see the abuse of the gospel and the abuse of truth all over the place. Faith healers do this. Televangelists do this all over the place. I and mean, you can purchase things online with the promise of a blessing from God, right? If you just donate $1,000, then we'll give you this special Bible. We'll mail you this special Bible with this special water. And if you sprinkle it on your house, I mean, everything's going to be amazing in your life and God's going to bless you tenfold for what you do. You see, that's using and abusing God. And there's so many out there who convince millions of people that they can purchase the blessings of Christ when all they're truly purchasing is a one-way ticket to hell. If, listen, if you put your faith in the blessings of Christ instead of Christ, you have missed the gospel entirely. Christ is the blessing. Christ is the blessing. There is no greater blessing in the gospel than knowing Jesus Christ. And if you can get that in your heart and mind, I'm telling you, it's going to save you a lot of pain in the years because if you just see Jesus, somebody to be used to get you something better, you've missed the gospel. Christ is the heart, right? He is the riches of the grace of God that have been lavished upon us. It is him and knowing him and only him. And anything else on top of that is just icing on the cake, all right? We have Christ. Here, Simon thinks he can purchase the gift of God. And that's more than likely the power. He wants the power. But some have taken this to suggest that he thinks he can somehow purchase salvation. He can purchase the grace of God to not only be saved, but to know the power of God. And listen, I just encourage you, if that's your mentality, grace is not for sale. And even if it was, you could never afford it. There's only one who could afford it. It was purchased by the one and only Jesus Christ, the only way it could be purchased. Jesus Christ gave his life. He purchased grace with his blood. It is a gift to be received, not a product to be purchased. Simon has actually shown himself to have no share either in the gospel or its blessings. I mean, here Peter is so direct with him. You have none of this, Simon, and the reason is that your heart is not right before God. Your motivation is impure. It's solely based on your own personal gain. It's not based on a love for God. And so he is denounced in this 
very direct rebuke as a spiritual fraud, as a spiritual counterfeit, as a spiritual pretender. And the church of Jesus Christ has that power and has that responsibility to tell people, listen, if you want to be a sham Christian, you're not a real Christian. And you need to know that so you can get yourself right with God. It's possible, listen, it's possible to be baptized. It's possible to be a fully functioning member of a church. It's possible to take communion every time it's offered. It's possible to be an elder in a church, a pastor, a preacher in a church, and yet not have a transformed heart. And that is a terrifying reality for anybody who claims the name of Christ. Now, this isn't to call into question your assurance. This is simply to ask you the question, do you know him? Do you love him? And are you following him? And if you know you're a spiritual pretender, will you get right with him? Because the, the beauty in this text, look, is that there is hope even for the worst kind of pretender. Even for those who would manipulate God. And even with those who would abuse people. Look, there is hope. Look at verses 22 and 23. Listen, Peter says, look, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter goes right at his heart and he explains his condition and he says, look, there's only one way out of this. You must repent. It must be truly heartfelt. You must be broken of your sin and you must address that before God. You must lay it down at his feet. You must confess it and you must turn from it. He says, I see that you're full of bitterness and you're captive to sin. You're in this spiritual prison. You've been deceived by the evil one. He uses the word bitterness there, which can be translated the gall of bitterness. And it comes right out of Deuteronomy 29, 18, where the influence of those who led the Israelites to follow other gods is described, listen, as a root among you that produces such bitter poison. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Peter may be warning him here about the potential that Simon has of causing much damage to the church, which, by the way, church history affirms, at least tradition affirms, that Simon became one of the greatest opponents of the gospel during this time. He did not repent. Instead, he ferociously attacked the church. He sowed seeds of false doctrine. Some claim that he began to influence un or people with Gnosticism. But what I love here is that Peter gave him a way out. God gives a way out to every spiritual repent pretender he gives a way out to every listen to every spiritual fraud he gives a way out to every sinner praise god hallelujah he offers grace even to the greatest of sinners sadly simon doesn't take it here and you'll notice his response in verse 24 look at this pathetic response and simon answered pray for me to the lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me i mean that is unbelievably weak sauce it is so pathetic. Like, there is no true desire in his heart to be right from God. Do you see what he's concerned about there? You pray for me because I'm afraid of the consequences. Right? I, I, I fear the consequences, but I don't want to embrace everything that you've said about this Jesus Christ. He doesn't pray for himself as he's called to. He asks Peter to pray for him. He wants freedom from punishment instead of the full freedom that God gives. And this book, this chapter, excuse me, ends with kind of a bookend. You'll notice verse 25, it says this. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You catch the bookends there? It begins and ends with a powerful proclamation of the gospel. Throughout Acts, Luke wants to emphasize that God energizes the gospel exclusively by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. The plan of God drives it. The promise of God guarantees it. The people of God proclaim it. The power of God accomplishes it. Listen, let the word of God, if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, could you just pause for a minute and just silence, just quietness, listen. Let the word of God call your heart to repentance and faith right now. 
Let the word of God call you to freedom and life in Christ Jesus right now. Today is the day of salvation. Bow your knee to him, fall on your face, and don't be like Simon who resisted with a hard heart. Hear the words, repent. Get your heart right before God. Receive his forgiveness and grace. Now, loved ones, those who follow Jesus Christ, can I ask you to let the word of God call you right now? Let the word of God call you to not be stagnant, to not be silent, to not be stationary, but to go, to get out into the world, to go into your neighborhood, to go into your workplace, to go and proclaim the message of life. We are a people, remember, we are a people who have been sent. Let us go with courage. Let us go with conviction. Let us go with compassion. But let us go above all with confidence because we know, don't we, church, that the gospel will prevail because his power cannot fail.